On this week's Big Tech Show, you might not think it could happen to you, but our guest this week explains how a significant number of Irish people may be falling victim to romance frauds online. Victims can feel a misplaced sense of shame. People can blame themselves. They feel embarrassed. And so they don't want to tell family, friends. They don't want to report it to the police. In some cases, of course, the victims are already in relationships. They're married. They have an extra reason to keep that quiet. The Big Tech Show, available on all podcasts platforms. On the latest episode of Real Health with me, Carl Henry, I'm delighted to be joined by international best-selling author Heman Sunim, telling us what to do when things don't go your way. When we are, you know, very young and have a first love and the first love did not work out, we feel as though this is the end of the world. However, we learn that is not the case. We move on. We find some other people. We begin to see that uh, when things don't go your way, uh, maybe it's not the end. As ever, we're available on all podcast platforms. Hello and welcome to the Troyan Independent.ie's GA podcast. We're here with a special edition of the Troyan as we look back on the top 50 GA controversies. Uh, Colin Keyes, uh, Vincent Hogan, Bratton Brenny with me, a triple threat of some of the biggest hitters in the j- sports journalism world. And I have to tip my hat to you, Colin. This is uh, an incredible body of work. I think it tips in at just over 21,000 words. I've read every one of them. You've wrote every one of them. Uh, just talk me through this. It's, a, it's a, an incredible body of work and an, an incredible view uh, back through the history of the GA and all the great, I'd have to call them great controversies down through the years. That's it, Michael. It started uh, actually probably probably this time last year when we were rummaging around for things to write about and uh Controversies was certainly one. We've we've produced lists of, and Martin has been instrumental in, in this. The great players, uh, the top players, the top games. We've we, we've covered all of that. But this thread of controversies has always really shaped the GA journey and marked its progression, and in some cases regression as well. And there are so many different genres of controversy in the GAA. If you take it from the those of a political hue, Rule 42, Rule 21, the occupation of Cross Midland, um, the ban, which uh, bookends this series, really. This is the last 50 years of 50 years controversies, 50 controversies in that time. And it's bookended by the ban right up to the breach of collective training by, by Dublin last week. And as I said, it started off as an article where I was looking at maybe 20. And soon the list, the preliminary list was over 60, heading for 70. So it was really only when I started to research them. And you go back into episodes like the three cork strikes, which are player strikes in the 2000s, which are are not that long ago, and the level of detail and how long they went on for. And you, you, you go through all and say, well, this is actually bigger than one article. Let's make a short series during the week about this. And that was probably sometime in May. And that progressed to the potential for what we have, uh, what we have on, on Saturday. And that is uh, a pullout, a special pullout with, with all 50 controversies, one to 50, in order of where we think they stand in terms of importance, in terms of impact and all of that. And as I'm researching uh, them, the two gents who are on the call with me here, 
Martin and Vincent feature quite prominently because they have written extensively, in some cases actually uh, kickstarting the controversies with interviews and, and, and such. So they are pivotal to the series. And it was only when I went back, number one, I realized how long they're actually in it, and two, how extensively the Irish Independent did actually cover some of these landmark events. And that goes right back to, I suppose, right through the 70s. We have the 1970s, starting with the ban, uh, the Three Striped Affair in Cork. There was a bookie who offered a house to Galway players if they scored more than 12 points in, in, uh, in, in, in the All-Ireland Final in 1973. And it goes right up through the hunger strikes into 1985. Vincent actually did a piece with John Finn, who had his jaw, jaw broken in the 1985 All-Ireland semi-final. Uh, he couldn't play in the replay, the Mayo half-back, and it was the great who'd done it. And in 2006, Vincent went down to Claire Morris, actually, and interviewed him, and it was one of the first pieces I had seen John Finn speaking on. So all of those things, I've encapsulated them all into this, into this feature. It made for a very interesting put, putting together, and obviously, I hope it makes for interest in reading too. Obviously, a lot of them have been written about, and they've been spoken about, but to encapsulate them and to put them all together like this, I felt it was a worthwhile exercise, and obviously so did my colleagues in The Independent. No, it definitely is a worthwhile exercise. And I always said about Martin Brehany, he's basically lived through the history of the GA. Uh, while, while Vinny and yourself were probably around for all these various controversies over the last 50 years, Martin has probably been working through them, in fairness to him. I won't give away, I won't give away the 1 to 50 or what you've ranked up the top. We'll leave that for our readers to see at the weekend. But Martin, off, off, the, off the top of your head, um, going back through all the various things that you've reported on, is there any one controversy in particular that would stick out? Well, you see, Michael, there are, uh, and Colin mentioned it, there are sort of uh, various threads to controversies. They're one of the historical nature, literally have historical nature, because the GA was always uh, wrapped up, I suppose, in, in, in the, the whole, there was a history too that, that, uh, attractive controversies, I'll say the, the Rule 27. And again, just to remind people that that was that if you, if you uh, were involved or attended or, or played soccer, rugby or hockey, or were involved in any way with that sport, with those sports, even if you attended a dance, supporting it or whatever, you were banned. And that that actually happened. But that was of historical. So, the, so Rule 42, the opening Crow Park, the uh, Rule 21, which precluded members of the... Uh, the, uh, the security force in the north and the British Army from joining the GA—they were all—they were, they were all linked to the GA's past. And I suppose, I suppose, Rule Forty Two would have been one of the bigger ones because of the uh, it, 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 it. These ones, Rule Forty Two, expanded beyond the GA itself, obviously, because the opening of Crow Park to other sports. Uh, if that didn't happen, soccer and rugby would have been played in England, so uh, or British venues. So that was a huge one. I would have thought that was that would have been a very big one. But there are so many of them, and the interesting thing is, Colin mentioned, and, and he's done it in a, in a very a very interesting way because there there are, there are a lot of them, major ones like that, and major ones that went on for a long time. All of those went on. Route forty two, the ban, the hunger strike problem in the north, and how the GA dealt with the Cross McGlen, which of course impacted on Rule twenty one because. That wasn't Rule Twenty One wasn't going to go until until Cross McGlen was uh, uh, the occupation until it ended. So all of those were were the, the, they were they were historical, so to speak. But then there were pop up ones like you know Newbridge or nowhere, just out of the blue, one one arrives, but suddenly bang, one day it's there, 
And Brian Whelan not getting an All-Star in 1994, the biggest mistake in the history of the All-Stars. Little things like that are big things like that, shall we say. And then, of course, there are all the managerial ones. And if you look through the managerial ones, and the, that that it's amazing that the changing time. In 1971, when this series was the starting point for this series, Managers, there weren't actually team managers as such. They were just, they were coming sort of, it was all committees that picked teams and the whole lot. Look now all through the years. And the controversies arising from managers and the removal of many of them by team, by players or whatever. So there's a whole mixture of that, uh, of the minutes, the big ones, small ones, and ones I think that will surprise people. I mean, the, the one Colin mentions there, the 1973 Galway offered a house, uh, offered uh, a house each for all 25 members of the team if they, um, beat Cork by 12 points. They'd beaten awfully Michael in the All-Ireland semi-final who were then going for the three in a row. And uh, the big controversy over that because the GA went, nearly had a meltdown. Galway players offered a house in Galway. Uh, a Galway just to remind people, houses in Galway City at the time cost around 10,000. So there were 25, 25 houses being put on, on offer for that. You can imagine the controversy. It was all over the front pages of the papers at the time. It never came to anything. Not least, I don't think... I don't think the the the, the um, auctioneer involved was trying to get the insurance against it. I don't think he succeeded in doing that. And uh, also, God, we didn't win by twelve points; they lost by seven. But that that's a, it's, a, it's a very interesting story and uh, forgotten probably by a lot of people. But they're they're all very they really are good. And as Colin mentioned, he mentioned that if they settled or he settled on fifty. You could have made it a hundred, and you'd still you'd still be some left out because that's just the nature of the association and uh, and the impact it has in Irish life and the the way it's, it spreads across every aspect of Irish life. Before we delve a little deeper, Vinny, is there anything in particular that stands out to you? We'll go into some of the 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 ones that column has gone into real detail because there's so much detail. All the fine details are nearly what makes the stories best. But is there anyone in particular, Vinny, that would stand out for you before we go into them? Well, I think the thing that stands out for me, Michael, is, you know, when I was asked to to read this file and I saw the size of it, I kind of thought, oh, my God, I couldn't put it down. Um, and the thing that stands out for me in that respect is the access we used to have. And you think of the particularly the sulfurous summer of 98 and the, the, the Clare controversy, the um, Munster final replay against Waterford and the, 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 what happened on the back of that. The, the Jimmy Cooney short short whistle or whatever they call it. All of this is bringing home to me because there's some phenomenal quotes in this. Just the access we had. We could go into dressing rooms and you could go in and in the most hostile environment. I mean, one of the controversies is uh, Cork and Mead in the 88 All-Ireland final and replay. And there was a kind of a viciousness in that rivalry. Yet we'd go in and stand on their towels in the dressing room and hold up a tape recorder. What do you think of that? Um, and I think that's that's what I love about this. I mean, Colin mentioned me going down to John Finn in 2006. It doesn't say much for me as an investigative journalist that I had a very nice lunch with John for two and a half hours and he, he still didn't tell me who did it. But there was that kind of intimacy in terms of our access to it, Michael, and you know, it's very sanitized today compared to that. And and I just love some of this stuff. One of the, a lot in this that I didn't realize, like the ban in 71 and Tom Chiesty miss, missing the 1963 league final because he was at a dance run by a soccer club. Stuff like this. There's some extraordinary detail in this. I, I think the readers are going to love it. Just going into some of the quotes that 
there, you said, Vinny, some of the great quotes that we got. Colin, this is obviously one that was quite close to you, and I'm sure if you could give any uh, piece of silverware back, it would be the last piece of silverware that your native Mead won with the 2010 Leinster final. There's a great quote there, and you have it in the headline. It was, I thought the, rec the ref was Dick Turpin without the mask. And this is, this is obviously high up in the list because the controversy between, between Mead and, I suppose, the minnows loud and loud having, you know, a rare chance to win silverware and then it was it was you know from the jaws of victory to the you know despair of defeat can you just talk me through some of the, the finer details of that 2010 Leinster final and that dubious goal well I suppose unlike the others that are either side of it uh, this was short this really only lasted from Sunday at half three as the game ended until about the following Wednesday when Loud decided it's time to move on here and there was no more no more manoeuvre for protest. But in those few days, it was sulfurous, especially the evening of the match, the aftermath of the match. There has never been an aftermath of a match of that stature like it, where a referee in full view of 50,000 and a, a wider, a much wider TV audience also is chased off the pitch because of a decision that ultimately should never, a goal that should never have been allowed stand. And that mistake was acknowledged the next day. That reference to Dick Turpin without the mask by the loud manager, Peter Fitzpatrick, that featured across all the papers on the following morning. And indeed, the referee did acknowledge to the GA in his report a mistake had been made, but there was no manoeuvre, there was no mechanism for a replay. That had actually been closed uh, about a decade and a half earlier after the Leash Carlo uh, replay was given, or was it the... It could have been Sarsfields and Nafina, uh, if I'm right in saying in a Leinster club match. The loophole for replays... Uh, on the basis of scores that shouldn't have counted was had been closed and it was really down to a gesture from me to uh to to offer a replay over two nights and for two nights the 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 sports and indeed news media were camped outside a, a public house outside Navan where Mead County Board were meeting two nights two nights running the Monday and Tuesday after that and Mead closed it off they said they weren't in a position the referee's report is final and they fell behind that. Obviously, that split the county. In fact, there would have been some dissenting voices even within the squad around then that would have been uncomfortable with that. Uh, as I said, unlike some of the other controversies that fill our top places, we'll say, that was a much shorter one. But I think its impact is probably reflected in the fact that it was Loud's first Leinster final in 50 years and they haven't been even close to one since. And who knows it's 10 years, 11 years this summer has passed since then. And they're nowhere near it at present. Obviously, Mickey Hart has taken over this year, but they're nowhere near it. And with a dom dominant Dublin team, you would think, well, when will Loud get an, an opportunity to win a Leinster title like that again? So for, for the impact it had for those few days, I did rate that. Uh, I did uh, rate that highly. But Vincent referenced the, the Clare, the summer of 88, and there were so many strands to that. Um, just so much to that, and including it started off earlier in the year with Babs Keating's criticism of the players. And actually, that happened under the stand, under the Cusick stand. Uh, Kilkenny had beaten off in a rather tame game. And I recall being beside you, Vincent, as Babs. Babs was out in the corridor, leaning against the wall, barefooted, like he had been when he was a player. And he delivered the criticism as if it was nothing to him. He, he, he delivered it and that was it. And no one thought any more of it until a journalist, one of the previous GA correspondents from this paper, Liam Horne, picked up the phone the following day to Johnny Pilkington. And uh, it all really took off from there. Johnny insisted the players, they couldn't have such criticism. And 
it created a rift that ultimately led to Babs's departure. Uh, from that, Michael Bond took over, and within 10 weeks, off we were champions. But in the meantime, Munster Council investigated the, the fractious replay between Waterford and Clare. Colin Lynch got a three-month suspension. There was the Clare FM interview that Gerald Nan conducted on the Wednesday before the All-Ireland semi-final, the first semi-final against Offaly. It was like a call to arms, but he absolutely filleted everybody from media to Munster Council. Everyone got it. The great machine gun interview um, that, that, that afternoon. On the, I think it was the Wednesday beforehand. So... From that to the, the short whistle, Jimmy Cooney, uh, Jimmy Cooney blew up early, obviously two minutes early when, when Clare were leading by three points. And that took that summer off in a different direction again. And again, I've rated that, I've put that highly because it was such a sequence of events and I blended the two together, the game, the semi-final being called early and the whole controversy around Colin Lynch and of course, Gerlach Nan's interview as well. So I blended all all of those together. So they were two that aren't necessarily of a political hue or a, uh, that, that involved Croke Park, we'll say, as an institution. They were match, more match-related that, that rated pretty highly. Just a funny, a funny anecdote, uh, Michael, in, in relation to, Colm has described it brilliantly there, that, that infamous Babs interview after the Leinster final. And I reckon there was about 12 or 13 of us around him at the time. But Babs was an Irish independent reader and he was addressing most of his answers to me and subsequently when all of this burst out and the controversy and Johnny Pilkington's interview with Liam Horan and he has to step aside in a subsequent book Babs blamed me for quoting him and it was all about Vincent Hogan and the Irish independent because two years or not two years in 1989 uh, Babs allowed me be in the dugout for Tips All-Ireland final against Antrim. So he hung me out to dry in this book anyway, that I was to blame, that I quoted him when he, he didn't think he was going to be in headlines in the Irish Independent. But about two or three years after that, I was at Connell Bonner's wedding down in Tip, and we are in the bar just after the church, and next thing... I'm leaning on the counter and a drink arrives. And I say, who's that from? And the barmaid says, it's that gentleman over there. I look across and Babs winks at me. So <laughs> Babs's mischief was always there, but he blamed the Irish Independent in 98 when there were 12 or 13 other journalists, including Colm, around, around us. Actually, Vincent, in 1998, the Independent were in the line of fire down in Clare that same summer, if, if I recall, because I was standing outside. I was standing outside the dressing. I'm not sure were you there or was it Clean? Clean Foley might have been beside me as the Independent's representative. I wasn't working for the paper at the time. I was with the Mirror, and I recall the Clare team coming out of filing out of the dressing room in Turles. In yeah. and uh, there were supporters outside, and one of them asked me. Was I Liam Horn? <laughs> and Liam and yourself and obviously other independent journalists, maybe it's because of the glasses and the receding hairline, but I was asked quite aggressively, was I Liam Horn? And if the answer had been in the positive, I know what the next move was going to be because they were absolutely spitting fire at that time. If I'm not mistaken, some shops actually didn't stock the independent for a week or two after that and pull up the death notices on the on the. Uh, 
put them up on the window after that. Such was the such was the vitriol over the cor- over the coverage uh, at that time. Yeah, I've never encountered an atmosphere like that post-match atmosphere in Thurles. And I remember us being in the tunnel outside the dressing room. I don't know if you remember that, Colm. And the players walked out in an almost militaristic style, heads down, not going to talk to anyone. And some of us would have gone to the bus outside looking to get quotes. But the atmosphere was absolutely venomous. And if anyone recognized you as from being the independent that day, you were in trouble. It literally was that. It, there was an electricity in the air. And, um, but I, I would have, uh, I, was, I was delighted that uh, that question was asked of a six foot five or six foot six man rather than me that day. It would have been brave men taking them on. I was only thinking <laughs> that, Jay. It would have been tearing, peering down on most of them. Um, I, I think for, uh, for a series of time, like that whole summer was just, it was like the summer that just kept on giving. It was just one thing after the next from, as you say, everything to do with Clare and Waterford and the suspensions and look, Nan cutting loose uh, in that Clare, Clare FM interview and uh, I suppose the Jimmy Jimmy whistle, uh, Jimmy Cooney short whistle, and then the the second replay, and then Offaly winning the All Ireland. It was an amazing summer, one that I definitely won't forget. Anyway, um, Martin, something that was probably a bit closer to home to you would be the Tony Keady affair, and I know you were you were close uh, close enough friends with with Cyril Farrell, and still you still are, and that you were given fairly uh, exclusive access to the to the Galway the Galway team in in the previous years. What was that like with his suspension and? missing the All-Ireland Hurling semi-final in 1989? Well, it was just one of the great injustices in, in, uh, to a player in, 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 in GA history. I mean, he was treated abominably. I mean, he played uh, allegedly illegally in New York, but half of the players playing in New York at the time, they, they were, it was illegal, and he was uh, out of the blue, was suspended uh, for the All-Ireland semi-final uh, against uh, Tipperary. And Vincent Hogan was smiling in the background there as well. Just say it's it's thirty two years later and he still has one over on you. Well, I mean the, 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 that may be the case, but the reality is that Tony Keady uh, was just treated so badly by that he was treated badly afterwards as well because they appealed to the Central Council and I mean it was a crazy system they had at the time. It was a Central Council vote to decide whether or not whether or not um, Tony Keady would be suspended and. Sometime uh, he was suspended in Gogolasti Island semi final in a rather fractious um, game. But sometime later, and this is the nonsense of it all, uh, all the people, or most of the players who had played allegedly illegally in New York, they were all suspended uh, and reinstated in Crow Park on one night. If you, once you admitted you were there, you were reinstated. It was that sort of nonsense that went on. And I mean, Tony Keady was just treated, treated badly. And it went, it went down very badly that, that it came to Central Council delegates eventually deciding. I mean, this was a, it was a daft disciplinary system at the time when it went to, to appeal. And in actual fact, uh, it, it wouldn't have stood up uh, subsequently because some of the people, I think, who were on the original committee were also on Central Council. But it went down very badly in Galway because a lot of votes from Connacht went against uh, Tony Keady, which was uh, didn't go down well and, uh, at all. I thought they would have they would have sided with him, but yeah, it was it was it was again it was one of those one of those pop up things that happened, and uh, um, it it just it it reflected badly on the on the way they on the on the disciplinary system because it was just chaotic in, in New York at the time and in America, players uh, going out on Friday evening back on Monday morning, and nothing wrong with that if if for players to go and have have a, have a good weekend. But for the GA to attach that to someone that you were playing illegally over there, 
Uh, it was just it 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 didn't reflect well, and it, it possibly cost Galway the three in a row. I mean, they they would have if they'd beaten Tipperary, which they'd beaten them twice in the previous three years. Uh, they would probably have, they would have won the All Ireland. I mean, that would be an Antrim got to the final beating awfully. So it it was a very it possibly cost Galway the the, um, the All Ireland title that year. You know, you you mentioned me smiling there, Michael. Um, I'm smiling because of my Martin's indignation that it was a great injustice, which which it was, incidentally. And um, I actually happen to agree with every single word he said there. It was kind of a, almost a show trial. And uh, to put it in context, people need to understand how big Tony Keady was. He was the standout centre back in hurling at the time. And... Um, you know, a good few years ago, I went down and I spent about five hours with him in in, in his house and uh, just talking about it. And, and he always felt very hurt that 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 game was denied him. And and there's no reason to believe that had Tony Keady played that day in '89 against Tip, that they wouldn't have had a far better chance of beating Tip. Um, I, I the the irony of that is when you think of how toxic it, it was at the time, and, and Martin is right, that semi-final between Tip and Galway was a very fractious affair. I think got two Galway players were sent off in the end, and there was a terrible atmosphere to it. But great friendships grew out of that rivalry. And, uh, you know, if you, if you, if you think of the, 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 the big personalities on both sides of that rivalry, they really, really came together as, as friendship, uh, strong friendships in, in latter years. And the really shocking thing to me is when I came upon this this one, the opening word, the opening words are the, the late Tony Keady, and it's still hard to believe that that great man has left us. It re- it really is a jolt to the system when you read those words. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Um, but Michael, Michael, just what, Michael, what point, final point there, Michael, on that. I mean, Paul, yeah. Paul Delaney, uh, if memory serves me correctly, he missed the final, didn't he? Because there was some there was some question of uh, having played. Uh, illegally in London or something like that and I, again I, I probably wasn't the case at all but I think Tip were, Tip were afraid that he would be um, that, that he might be in trouble if uh, that might be in trouble if he played so that sort of nonsense that was going on with players uh, at, that, at that stage he was being sentenced tidied up but that was that was not uh, it, it was it was unfair on the players at the time and, and seriously so in, in the case of a player who missed an Ireland semi-final and an Ireland final No definitely without a doubt uh, Colm I suppose it, it's very hard to Particularly, you get down to the, the nuts and bolts of the the, the really really high uh, I suppose high profile controversies, and Cork featured three times uh, with, with the with the ver- with the various strikes. Just just talk me through how just how seismic they were and the impacts that they had on the GA as a whole, but particularly on Cork GA as well. Well, I rated all of these three very very highly. Uh, in fact, the last one I've described it as Cork's dirtiest war because that's really what it was. I think it's only when you're reading back on Gerald McCarthy's parting statement that you realise the depth of feeling around this. And two things that really stood out for me in that statement when when I'm looking back in the war. First of all, there was a, a death threat investigated, subsequently investigated by Gardy. And secondly, he made reference to the his suggestion that some of the players were advised not to attend a family one of his a family funeral his his mother's funeral had she had died in 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 the midst of all of this, and that some of them were advised players not to attend the funeral. He says thankfully that didn't come to pass in certain cases. But when you see the depth of those feelings, and you know Gerald probably felt there was a broader picture here that there was 
an element of pay for play, that this was a, a battle for something greater than just control of the management of the Cork team at that time. He saw something bigger, which, which never manifested. But the fact that this was the third of these strikes in less than a decade made it much, much more acute. And I think there was 10,000 people marched in Cork City Centre on the just before the league started. And there was another significant march before a league game with Dublin uh, that year too. So by and large, the, the Cork players uh, had, it seemed that they had the public, at least the public were more exercised to come out and support them than maybe they were to to castigate them in any way. That The voices of approval were louder in support of the players. But I actually rated the, the first Cork strike quite highly too, because it differed from... It differed from the uh, from all the other player strikes, we'll say, that were probably uh, launched in opposition to managers. This one was launched in opposition to to welfare issues at the time. And Cork, obviously, being you know the, perceived at the time, in the early 2000s, as the strongest county board of all that did everything according to the book. But here they were exposed to poor welfare practices that were highlighted. And when the players marched into a hotel in late November in Cork in, in late November in 2002 and set out their list of demands, it really was uh, a new step forward for a group of players. Remember, the Gaelic Players Association was only, only three years old, not even three years old, just over three years in existence at that stage. But this was seen as a huge stand by Cork players against the county board that was seen as all-powerful. And within a few weeks, they had... Uh, the Cork County Board had acceded to those demands. So from that point of view, that was a real step forward in terms of player welfare development, in, in which, which has dominated over the last two decades. We have seen the rise of the GPA, and indeed there are a couple of, a couple of uh, episodes around their evolution and, and moves towards uh, the payment of grants and the uh, commercialization, the, uh, one, of the, one of the deals that they struck in, two, in 2000. Um, with Marlborough, the recruitment company, that also featured quite prominently because it put them on a collision path, direct collision path with the GAA and the GAA's rulebook. So I rated all three Cork strikes that bit higher than any of the other strikes from any other counties on that base. If you remember, the middle one required a mediator, the country's top mediator, Kieran Mulvey, to go down not once, twice down to Cork to mediate a settle settlement. He produced a memorandum of understanding for the first time, and then an arbitration document the second time that led to that dispute uh, being set aside. But within less than a year, the third one had risen up again. So really, it was a troubled spot, and, and that's why it featured prominently. I suppose one of the things about all these controversies is, is the amount of column inches that, that they do give us, because there's such talking points, and uh, people debate them so much, I suppose, and one that was definitely, uh, was, would have been debated an awful lot down through the years, but Martin, just talk to me a little bit about, about Rule 42, and uh, Crow Park being opened in particular for, you know, for soccer and rugby internationals. Uh, like, when you started off as a journalist, do you, did you ever see something like this uh, coming to fruition, and just how big was it when it actually did happen? Well, I actually did because I think there was a new generation coming through um, that that saw the, the benefit of it. And if you go back to 1991 when, 1992 when Crow Park and the GA uh, uh, issued their plans for the redevelopment of Crow Park, at the time there was talk of building a national stadium, and that subsequently uh, advanced into the Berkeley Bowl and uh, the Aircom Park for soccer and all of this type of thing. But 
an interesting thing was at the in the background everybody knew that Crow Park there was a lot there was a clear logic in having it open to uh, open to soccer and rugby, but there were enough people against it uh, at the time to 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 keep it off the agenda. But in two thousand and one, a very interesting thing happened at the Congress in two thousand and one, which possibly changed the course of stadium history in the sense that uh, there was a it was it, it was to be debated at, at Congress in uh, two thousand and one whether or not they would they would open Crow Park, and the night before Congress, the government. Um, offered or not offered, uh, announced that they were giving a 60 million, I think it was, pounds grant to Crow Park. And I always remember being, at, it was in the Burlington Hotel, and people were saying, well, that's it now. That, they'll definitely open Crow Park now because they're getting 60 million pounds to the government. And I have to say, I took a different view, and quite a lot of others did as well. I think there's no chance probably now of being passed because there were other there were other things at work here. I.e., there was still the plan to build the Bertie Bowl and all that. The, the government had their own plans, or certainly Bertie Hearn did, to build a, the, his own stadium. And in a way, this looked to me like, almost like a uh, an attempt for the, to to persuade the GA not to vote in, uh, for opening Crow Park. In other words, we'll give you the money to build Crow Park. We'll go ahead and build our own as well. As it happened, it was beaten. The the vote was. Uh, to open Crow Park lost by required a two-thirds majority was beaten by a single vote and it was ridiculous really because it was a show of hands so you have all the 300 people and uh, people go around terrors go around counting shows of hands and hands are up and down and the whole lot and of course when the result was announced uh, there was a call for a recount it didn't happen the, because uh, the, the I think Sean McCabe was president at the time he said you know we can't uh, we have to have what we have to stand before we what's what's decided here. But it should have been a, it should have been a secret vote in my view. But that was uh, then, of course, it uh, it uh, went into the back burner a little bit um, for the next few years. And the back burner at Congress, that is, it was there was even an attempt to keep it off Congress, and it was kept off Congress one year before eventually, uh, two thousand and five, uh, it, it was passed. But uh, and that, of course, changed everything. They they but as I said earlier, they. Uh, if the, the the pressure was really on then because the, and the, the clear logic and you know Sean Kelly was president and he pushed it hard in fairness to him and got great credit for it but there were other people who did an awful lot of hard work on that as well uh, Tommy Kenoy Anthony uh, Delaney down in Leash Noel Walsh who'd been at it for years and these guys they kept at it and kept and eventually the, it was like the ban in the end the clubs the counties the general the general GA membership wanted it open. And as a result, it was open. Crow Park was open in 2007, hosted rugby and soccer for about four years. The GA walked away with uh, 36 million, as it was at the time, in rent money for that, which was spread around the country. And the great, the, the, the great pity to this day, and I'll always say, all of the big rugby and soccer matches should still be in Crow Park. How would it make sense to have a big rugby match in Crow Park or in, in Lansdowne Road? For fifty thousand, we have eighty thousand in Crow Park. It doesn't it doesn't make sense? Thirty thousand people can't get tickets. They're, 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 uh, they're stadiums in the same city. But there you go. That's 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 modern day politics. There are a lot of politics damaged or interfered, or damaged the GA and caused all sorts of problems on them over the years. But that's modern day problem. Uh, modern day politics. That's actually denying thirty thousand people a chance to see a rugby game in Crow Park. That is, if anybody ever gets to see a rugby game anywhere again. But when all this is over. I'm just making that point that uh, it, it's a pity Crow Park still isn't open for all those big games and let as many people as possible see them. I smell a Brehany beat post-COVID. I've written it so often about this day, but it doesn't change the fact that 30,000 people more can see those big games, and that's GA people, rugby people, soccer people, will see the really big games. And maybe when all of this is over, this, we imagine this pandemic, there'll be a lot more uh, common sense around to, to, make, to make that happen. Because if a stadium is that big, 
the people the, as many people as possible are entitled to see the games. Uh, fair point. Vinny, just a quick one on the on Route 42, and I'm sure you were in Croke Park for those games. I know it was, I think it was France in the in the Six Nations, and then it was, or it could have been the Five Nations at the time, followed by England. What was the emotion like? It, it must have been absolutely electric. Well, the day of the England game was extraordinary, Michael, and you could see it in the, it was reflected in the performance of the team, one of the great Irish performances. And uh, I would have been, obviously, I would have written Eddie O'Sullivan's book in which he spoke about the, the symbolism that they felt going into that week, they'd, they'd lost already to France, a game that ultimately would deny them the Grand Slam. But it was just an extraordinary sense of uncertainty in terms of how the crowd would react to God Said the Queen being sang in, in Croke Park. Um, and, you know, what the emotion of the occasion would do to the team. So, Of, of all the sporting occasions that we've witnessed, I, I think that day in 2007 in Croke Park was one of the most extraordinary. But but if I could mention Rule 21, I, I remember in, in 98, and it was around the time of the Good Friday Agreement when, when this was back up for debate, which was the, the rule precluding the security forces from being members of the GA. And I remember spending a week up in the north, going to South Armagh, going into the Ardoin. And, and the one thing that really struck me very powerfully up there was that we had this history of almost lecturing the nationalist community in the north about being stuck in the past and would they move move forward and, and, and get over their issues. And it really brought it home to me how really we had some cheek lecturing these people because of the practicalities that they had faced over the years. So it was a very, very difficult thing for those people and the GA community up there to accept that this rule could be passed. So I, I think what really comes home in, the, in, in in this series is how tricky so many of these issues were for the GA, even going to the hunger strikes and, you know, the, the pressure on the GA to support the hunger strikers. I think nine of the 23 hunger strikers had very direct GA links. Um, that's what's really interesting to me, that it was a very, very challenging time for a lot of these issues, for those in, in power within the GA. And, and I think, by and large, we'll look back on it and say they handled them pretty well. Yeah, no, without a doubt. Uh, we'll just go around the houses, lads. We're just coming to, to the end. Just go around the houses, Colin. Is there anyone in particular, uh, any controversy in particular, that you have a particular, uh, it's particularly maybe emotive for you or something that you were embroiled in, potentially could have been one of the mead ones that would have been fairly close to the heart. Anyone in particular? No, but one of the we probably discussed most of the, the the biggest ones there. But one, some of them that strike out, uh, strike me were that there there are a number included that uh, where the spoken word got people in into bother. And one of them was obviously more recent than than the two others. But Kevin Cassidy's obviously collaboration with Declan Bogue for the book that ended up with him being. Uh, put off the, the Donegal panel at the end of 2011 and the furore around that and even the alienation for Cassidy in those months after that. And Donegal went on to win the All-Ireland uh, in his absence. Now, there were moves to get him back. That should be acknowledged too. But pr previous to that, Paddy O'Shea did an interview with the Sunday Independent at the end, end of 2002 where he described the... Uh, the Kerry supporters as the roughest animals. Now, he meant it. It was almost a term of endearment in many ways. Those that would know Paddy would say it's just a it's just a phrase that he used, not, not with any malice. And I think most people would have seen that, but it really took off in Kerry. And there was reference to, obviously, John O'Shea, that Paddy would be taking more 
more more a greater part in the training. So he really landed himself in that, and the, and the phone lines were jammed uh, into Radio Kerry, and there was a very very split uh, feeling towards what he had said. And as it happened, Kerry were away in South Africa uh, at the time for most of it, and when he came back, it was a clear operation. But that ran. That was a great, as we call them, winter story. And before that, uh, in 1970 after the All-Ireland Final, Tony Hanahan did an interview with McGill where he had been critical of, uh, uh, well, not so much critical, but was uh, registered as opposition to Seamus Aldridge having been appointed to the 1978 All-Ireland Final. And obviously there was a an infamous incident in that where Mikey Sheehy chipped Paddy Cullen from a free and many would feel that was a turning point in that game. But Seamus, uh, uh, Tony Hanahan got a one-month suspension subsequently for that, which could have been six months because he played the day after the suspension was issued and Dublin felt that was okay because it was on appeal. So that ran its course too. So those three where the spoken word caused controversy, probably because you know we're newspaper and we generate content and all of that, that they that they were derived from the spoken word from interviews conducted with people that they that that they flared up in that respect. And I suppose it's probably a direct result of that that people are maybe less willing to uh, speak as loosely nowadays. But Martin, uh, something that I'm sure, one of the controversies that I'm sure is uh, fairly close to your heart would have been the, the axing of uh, uh, Noel Kennelly and Pat Holmes. And you obviously did the interview uh, subsequently. And just read the, read the quote here from it. It says, if some egos aren't checked and outside influences curbed, the problems will continue. That was uh, in 2015 when the Mayo players basically uh, uh, kind of were, basically were going to withdraw their services and Pat Holmes and Noel Kennelly uh, walked walked away as a result after one year in charge. Um, are you welcome in Mayo since doing that interview and what was the fallout like even personally for you? I'm always welcome in Mayo. Lots of good friends in Mayo. You'll always get a bit of stick as well, but I could never quite understand uh, why, if you, if you write an interview with somebody, that you're somehow blamed for for what they say? But I think in, in uh, Pat and, and Noel's case, the fact that they did an interview with uh, a Gawler man, albeit a Gawler, but out of Gawler for a long time now, but I think that didn't go down particularly well. But Vincent talked earlier on about access to people and what they are prepared to say. I mean, uh, the fact that these two. Uh, men who had given so much to Mayo football were prepared 15 months later and that they were hurt so much by what happened and they were prepared to to talk so openly and state their case as they saw it and backed it up very, very uh, coherently. Um, it was it was certainly, it, it was different because you don't get much of that nowadays. It was a brave thing for them to do. They felt they were perfectly entitled to do it and I think anybody who read the interview at the time, they were perfectly entitled to do it. But it it, it 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 really happens nowadays that people would be. But it shows you the depth of feeling that they that the, that they how they felt at the time. And you know, Mayo still are waiting for that All Ireland final. I presume if if Mayo had won the All Ireland final the following year, they'd have come in for a lot of criticism, perhaps on some players or whatever. That didn't happen. But they were they were, they were brave enough to do it and wanted to do it and felt it should be done. And but it just shows you the change times as well with management. I remember being in Mayo 1992 with a previous manager. Uh, Brian McDonald was actually uh, he he resigned eventually after, but this is after the players rebelled against him following the Ireland semi final defeat by Donegal, and that one of the one of the accusations of Arthur Campbell against him was that the training and some of the training methods involved pushing a car around a car park, which of course 
uh, if they'd won the All Ireland, everybody, in the, every every team and junior team and everybody would be pushing cars around car parks. But again, it was a it was a pretty fraught time in Mayo. But uh, Brian Farmer won All Ireland medal with with uh, Dublin sixty three. Uh, so, but he he stepped down eventually. But again, we were allowed into the county board meeting the night he he came in and addressed the county board meeting. All the the, the county board had a full full meeting, the whole lot, and the media were allowed in. I was in the Irish Press at the time. I think Tom O'Reilly was there for the Independent. My God, it was different times. That was 1992. But it shows you how they changed times with managers. You know, Anthony Cunningham, Eamon Coleman, for instance. Derry, got, Derry County Board got rid of him a year after they won the All-Ireland for the first time. Won the All-Ireland in 93. He's gone the following year, uh, removed by the County Board. So Justin McCarthy, those different times in terms of, of, of how managers, uh, there were no managers going back, say, 50 years. and They were all, as I say, selection committees. But now managers very much in the fire line. Um, and players prepared to take whatever steps. And that's why I say the Holmes Canary thing, they fought back and made their case and made it very coherently. Vinny, I'll leave the last word to you. Any particular controversy that stands out to you? Well, I think it's, uh, two things that stand out for me, Michael, is when you look at where Limerick Hurling is at the moment, they're kind of considered suddenly this superpower, one, two of the last three All-Irelands and, and red-hot favourites to go again this year. There's two controversies involving them here. 1996, the 20 questions of Tom Ryan after the All-Ireland final defeat by Wexford, where Wexford had Eamon Scallon sent off. And, you know, there's one of the questions, it's incredible when you think about this, is does he and the management team accept responsibility for the defeat? And what others like, what was their plan for playing against a team with a man down? So, like, that was an extraordinary thing when you think about it. They'd got to an All-Ireland final, and uh, I think they won the league under Tom Ryan the following year. But those 20 questions essentially persuaded Tom Ryan there was no future with this. They didn't win a Munster title for the, another, the next 17 years, incidentally. And then, there, of course, there's a Justin McCarthy situation in 2010 where 12 players were dropped off the panel. They heard their fate on local media rather than getting a phone call. 12 other players decided to step out with them. And that will always be remembered as the last year for Limerick because they put out a shadow team. They were well beaten in all their league games. They were well beaten in the championship. And, um, you know, 2010, it's it's only 11 years ago. We, we all did pieces on the 10th anniversary of it last year. But it just shows you that counties can be in serious distress. But uh, the, the road does turn for people and it certainly turned for Limerick Hurling. I think for me, the one of the most quirkiest controversies anyway would definitely be the only ben, only Bendix could whitewash this lot. The the picture of the Kerry lads that appeared um, fairly scantily clad on the morning of the 1985 All Ireland final. Um, just yet another one of these uh, amazing kind of controversies that maybe you kind of forget about. But Colm has brilliantly um, put them all together for Saturday's paper. They will appear in the Irish Independent. A special pull out this Saturday. And it will be across independent.ie all weekend. Uh, Vincent, Martin and Colm, thanks a million for joining me. Appreciate it. Thanks, Michael. Thanks, Michael. Thanks a million for listening. The Throw-In Podcast will be back when GA resumes over the coming months. Until then, thank you and goodbye.